When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 109th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. For the second episode running, it is as promised. If you haven't listened to the first part of this episode, because this is sort of like a double episode, you need to go back and listen. Here's the director of Point Blank, which is uh, we are in the bowels of the post-production house right now as we talk on That's Skype. Very, yeah. yes. um, mayhem um, uh, with the amazing Stephen Yeun. I discovered him as a leading man just before all this Oscar buzz um, and the co-host of the awesome and amazing movie crypt a veteran of this show a dear friend of the show too the legendary joe lynch welcome back to one heat minute thank you very much i'm so glad that i got to take a bathroom break uh, (laughs) because i i needed to evacuate my bowels to get ready for this next minute because you will all like if you haven't seen this movie which is obviously you've all seen this movie so uh you know hopefully well if if you haven't stop and watch it again uh if you have which you have These are the moments that we all cherish. These are the moments in Heat that we all... And this is the things that... This part of Heat is where, when the movie came out, everybody just went, holy shit, did you see that moment? It's kind of like that one track on an album, maybe, maybe track six or seven, that was either the single... Or the one that you went, oh, my God, how fucking great is that fucking anthem? <laughs> and then slowly you start to appreciate everything that All came before. All the other stuff around it. After. Yeah. Because, you know, this – I remember when this film came out, you know, that this was really what everybody talked about was, the you know, this insane heist – how you know uh, amazing it was and how brutal it was and how all the actors were so immersed in it uh even back then they were talking about how crazy uh skilled Val Kilmer was um you know just with his reloading and everything and that was that ended up being a major selling point in the film and then over the years people started to watch it over and over again whether it was on video or laserdisc and started realizing like oh wow there's more to this movie than I even saw maybe the first time around. Now, I can attest <clears throat> that <laughs> when I saw the movie the first time, I, I, loved, it. I loved the heist, but the, it wasn't my favorite part of the movie. Um, I mean, the whole movie was my favorite part of the movie, but the thing that I appreciated was the details that were around it. You know, there's, a, there's this uh, delicacy called a scotch egg in the UK. Do you guys have it over there? Yeah, we've got it. We've got it. Okay. So to me, you know, the egg in the middle is the heist, but 
the breading and the bacon and everything around it. That's what I appreciate because that all of that all of that sizzle is what we need to make what happens, especially in this next minute, count. Yes. And I, I remember God, I you know, and I was oh my God, I'm feeling so old right now. I was in the <laughs> middle of editing no the dude, this is fucking full circle here. I remember I was editing my first short and I was um you know, and this is Back in my day when we used things called celluloid and we had things called movieolas that didn't have computers attached to them. You took the film and you spliced it and you put some tape on it and you prayed that the thing didn't break when you showed it. You know, uh, I, I was so immersed in the delicacy or, or maybe more, no, not delicacy, more the delicate nature of every cut in a movie. Yes, because I was making my own, and you know, I, I had edited before on uh, two VCRs and shit like that. So I was used to like hitting the pause and the record button at the same time and trying to make my little things. But when you get to something that is so tactile, like actual film, and you cut every time you make a cut on your work print, there is a chance that your film could break and everything can end in disaster. So you had to make sure that every cut count counted. And when I, I remember watching Heat and going. This must have been a fucking nightmare. Oh my god! Can't even like, imagine it. There's so many shots that are in there that don't even really need to be in there. To like, if like upon first view, like you know, a shot of a a, a car that has a strobe in the background, or you know, a, a a weird, almost out of focus shot as people are running from afar. You know, in a if it wasn't Michael Mann, I guarantee that's like some studio head would have said, take that shit out. Let's get this thing moving. But <laughs> yes. because, because it's Michael Mann and he can say, fuck you. I want my fucking out of, you know, out of focus shot in there because it's a tapestry of images and it's a, you know, it's a texture and a feel of chaos. And then they would go, okay, sounds good. You're the man literally. Um, but w- watching this, watching that movie when that came out and then coming back to the edit, I remember thinking like that. Wow, I've I've been so blown away by a true genius. But the thing that I couldn't get my head out of was not how did he do this, and boy, that must have been exciting to shoot that. It was how the fuck did Dennis Haysbert's character last this movie? Because <laughs> any other filmmaker, I'm being totally serious, any other filmmaker or any other movie that tried to install a character that had absolutely no rhyme or reason until an hour into the film. Mm-hmm. Again, a studio head or executives or whatever, they would, that would have been the first fucking thing that they would have honed in on. Like, got to keep the thing moving. A, a hundred and not like nearly two hours, yeah. 109 minutes where if you count and Blake, I'm sure you can do it more than I can. But if you, if you culminate all of Breeden's, set up to the moment when he has to make that fateful decision it, it what maybe eight minutes nine minutes tops maximum where uh, you see you, him get you're, out you're, you see him being, with his wife then, you're, you're, being gen- I mean, generous, you're being generous right? totally yeah. generous but now that 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 role the driver role you know could have been anybody it you know and, and it really it could have been just coincidence but the fact that man gives you so like more than you needed Oh, and wait. then this happens. I think like it, I, he, he's that's that's what I think is the bravery 
and the balls now years later as we can sort of appreciate that like you talked about that outer rim of this delicacy is that he means his his tiny tail in this should be the most inconsequential but in fact it's so resonant and powerful especially when you see the echo at the bookends of the scene which is sort of jumping a little yep. bit ahead here but when we see the you know the, the forthcoming consequences and then the fallout you're like Jesus Christ like it's a really emotionally impactful especially because the other scenes are so they're just so well economically told but loaded like they feel like they're carrying you know they feel like that thing where like a cockroach can carry like 10 times its weight you know like it just it shouldn't yeah. the the molecular structure of those scenes way more than other scenes where you're introducing side characters i don't know what it is there's some weird alchemy of perfect acting and just delicate scripting and the way that it is framed but it shouldn't weigh as much as it does, but in this movie, he's like he. The Donald Breeden arc in this movie is something as part of this project that I've just come to appreciate on a completely another level. It's it's so and I, amazing. And, and I know I know we got to jump into the minute now, but the one thing that I, I want to just before I forget it is, I think this is kind of the the precursor for our appreciation for serialized drama. Yes, where you know now. I sometimes I mean I think that th- th- there's been a t- like tectonic shift in in drama and, and the way content is being presented because it used to be that films were the novels and TV was the short stories it, you know just in terms of reputation or whatever now it's like films are the short story and TV is allowing us to have novel worthy storylines novel worthy lines and yeah. you'd never and again if if man was trying to just make this as a tight two hour thriller just in you're out boom 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 kind of like a heist um we we wouldn't have the emotional resonance that normally soap operas have that's why i always called it a soap opera because there really weren't many shows that allowed us to have peripheral characters have the kind of impact that they do in this moment uh, I want to definitely, when we come back, I want to talk about the audience when shit hits the fan because I remember <laughs> very, very succinctly. Well, we're going to watch, this is the 109th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime episode. You know the drill. You know the discipline. We're going to watch the minute. You have a listen along and Joe and I are going to come back and talk about it. Go, 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 go! go! I'm like, we could just keep watching. That's the only thing I hate about this show is every time I'm on it and we get to the end, I know it's coming and I'm like, wait, just one more second. Damn it. Because (laughs) God damn, this is chock full of stuff. Okay. Where to start? Where to start? I'm just going to jump all over the place only because 
I, well, fuck it. It's, you know, we can. Um, <laughs> there's one thing before you lead off. There's one thing, as we talked at the end of the last episode, folks, if you haven't listened to it, go back and do so. But we just briefly mentioned Anna McNabb and Mick Gould. And the reason that I mentioned it, because I thought it was a great lead off, it's something that, you know, not many people would know, is that as part of the technical advisory of this, um, of this scene and this moment, one of the guys was in a, was in Northern Ireland in a car where they were ambushed. And Mann talks about it in the commentary, and he doesn't say which one, but I'm assuming it's one of these two guys, Andy McNabb or Mick Gould, because I couldn't find another technical advisor on the list that had like mm-hmm. military training. And he talked about they were assaulted in an ambush in Northern Ireland, and, in, and when, they saw that they, when they saw their out was directly ahead of them, they had no hesitation but to pull their gun and fire directly out of the windscreen. And so in yep. that moment here, which I love, and I love that they made a choice to slow it down so that you could really get into just how like Neil is operating on like this other level. When I see that moment, he's operating with the same fluidity as Chris is as far as just being ready to let it go. Like he's, he's there's no hesitation to shoot out of the front of the car. But I just love that that little bit of business is just another layer of authenticity on like someone who really was in some shit where they were ambushed that like in every other it's it's the things in heat that i love and in particular in this high scene the things that completely go against what convention has told us is real like chris not putting on his balaclava in the heist still blows me away because again the cameras are off, right? We would never think that someone could go into yeah. a bank heist without a mask on. And in this moment, how many movies, Joe, have you seen? And I know that you are a true cinephile where someone has to duck their whole body out of the vehicle before they're willing to fire. In this movie, it's like one of the only movies or one of the first movies I certainly saw where they just were like, no way, boom, 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 straight out the windshield. I'm not going to kick it. I'm not going to smash yeah. it first. I'm going to fire out of this windshield while we're driving. Well, Blake, you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, last last minute, way back in the last minute we discussed, um, <laughs> you know, we were talking about how Val's character, Chris, has that pivotal moment where everything changes. And, you know, and then the way that it's presented, shot and cut, everything changes in 18 frames, yes. roughly, right? Whereas when we do the same exact moment, you know, in, in, in thematically maybe, when we, do, when we present the same moment to Neil, where now the heat is around the corner. This is the moment he's been talking about the entire movie. This is the ethos of his life. This is his thesis. When the heat's around the corner, he needs that. He needs to figure out that 10 seconds. And yes. where Chris, we don't see his inner monologue. We don't get to no. you know, jump in his head. We see, that. We, see the, we see psychopath turn on. We see Patrick <laughs> Bateman furrows out, and he just starts to lay waste to anything in his way, including rental trucks. Whereas, you know, look, we've been following Neil through thick and thin. We've been, you know, uh, with him in the uh, whatever you call the good times. We've been with him in his love life. We've had pensive private moments with him. So it's like man knows that we have a connection to Neil more than we do Chris. Anytime that we're with Chris, you know, other than, you know, when he's with the crew, you're only getting glimpses. You're only getting you get enough where you realize not everything is great at home. You know, Ashley Judd sleeping around. He really loves going to lumberyards. You know, <laughs> things like that. But they're but they're never um, they're never as emotionally resonant as you know a moment where Neil McCauley leaves uh, you know a glass of water in it with an origami napkin for Amy Brenneman. You know, like 
he he's invested us in this character. So to have this this one moment where the world slows down. Now you look at the rest of the film, or no, I'm sorry, you look at the rest of this scene. Other than some speed ramps when he, you know they're putting on you know masks, or later on when uh, when Neil picks Chris up, those are edits that I think were kind of delivered in post because the action just wasn't as fast as it should have been. So it wasn't what he intended. Yes. Um, and, and believe me, I've, I've been through that, too, where you were like, come on, actors, speed the shit up a little bit. <laughs> and, and you know what? In those moments with man, it works because he's already kind of established a language in the edit that the audience accepts it. Whereas, you know, this moment when it slows down, I remember when the movie came out and when I was just getting into um, filmmaking myself and again, old man Lynch over here, uh, <laughs> you know, when we wanted when you wanted slow-mo. You either had to create it in the camera, which meant that you're eating up more film because you're going faster. So when I was in film school, if you wanted a slow-mo shot, if you wanted to pull off a big fucking John Woo gunfight or whatever with slow-mo and index cards flying and fucking doves and shit, (laughs) double guns, that cost you half of your role just for one or two shots. So in most cases, you didn't do it, you know, unless you knew exactly what you needed. If you in post went, you know, in, in your edit, you went like, man, I would love to slow this down. You have to go to the optical printer. It's not like today where in the Avid or the Premiere or Final Cut, where if you wanted to slow something down, you just go into hit a couple buttons and everything. Yeah, and you, 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 oscil- you, oscil- you oscillate a, a tiny bit of a clip and you yeah. use a keyboard shortcut and it gives you an option of what speed you wanted at. Like, like yeah. not, the, not the finesse of I've got to burn a whole half a roll of film mm-hmm. and this may not work like the the madness of that in this sequence and we talked and about it needs- it, it, we talked about the great editors but like this is why logistically if you look at that if you go to i'm do yourselves a favor if you're listening to the show and you can get on your phone while you're listening or, or on your computer go to imdb and look at the editing not the editors the great pat boober may rest in peace dove honing but the editing teams because you got two Massive teams yeah. working in a 24-hour cycle. One team's on at 12 hours. The next team's on another 12 hours or whatever. And they're putting this thing together on film in the precision that we're talking about. It is madness, Joe. It's freaking and, and madness. That, I, dude, like, again, I, I'm in the middle of editing Point Blank right now. And I have two guys, you know, like I, my editor, Jim, and my and our assistant, Micah. And, I mean, we were cranking. And the, the amount of footage that they were shooting on heat is like 10 times what we had. So to, to be able to cobble that all, all together and make it work. But um, but yeah, last thing on that slow-mo, because it does feel out of place yes. in the rest of the film. Like at least if you look at the rest of the sequence, there's no other spot where that moment and that post-production step edit process happens. Yes. And it's not the same as a, a normal slow-mo in-camera slowdown. And I've always been curious. It's one of those dumb things that if I, you know, if I ever get a chance to to sit down with Michael again, um, I would almost say like, why did you choose to do the post at the slow mo as opposed to the um, the smooth like slow mo? Because I have a feeling like he's the type of filmmaker that prefers that look of that type of slow mo over, you know, for that moment over something that's more elegant and balletic like like the regular you know 48 to 60 slow-mo that's done in camera there's something that's um very revealing about that type of slowdown 
and especially when it's done in camera. Now what you do is you shoot everything at a high, a high frame rate and a high shutter speed so that you can get that kind of like speed ramping thing that you see in a lot of movies now. Like, uh, you know, 300 did it a lot and every movie did since where yeah, everything starts normal speed and then and then goes up again. This is a moment that had to be. That's like influenced largely by sports photography too. Like it's like yeah. they shoot everything at the high frame rate so that when they do, when they're cutting slow mo mm-hmm. clips and stuff, they can they can play that game. Yeah, like for instant replay and stuff. Yeah, and then then you get to that moment where you know again, he man is allowing the world to slow down for us to go. This is the heat around the corner, Neil. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. And what does he do? They they go straight through it. They go right forward. He pulls up a fuck. He pulls up the uh, the it was the the car fifteen, yeah. and he just starts shooting right out of the windshield. <laughs> um, and then this is where we get into a, a like a a slightly fun continuity error. Uh, if you look very closely, and I know you have, but our viewers <laughs> should look at it again. Yeah. But the mysterious wind, uh, window, uh, sorry, the mysterious um, mirror that falls in the point of view shot then falls again <laughs> in this side shot and then is actually in another shot from afar that's that's where look continuity used to drive me fucking up the wall when i was a little kid and even does today especially when you're a filmmaker uh continuity can be the bane of your existence where you're like yeah. that that vase was on the table and now it's off like i had one in point blank where we shot a scene maybe the first two days of the shoot and there was Chinese food on the table, right? There was just a bunch of like Chinese food boxes and everything on the table and whatever. And then we had to come back four weeks later to shoot the rest of that scene just for actor scheduling. And we got back and we're starting to shoot or like we're getting ready and we're about to shoot. And I go, where's the Chinese food boxes? And the art department, who were amazing by the way, this was kind of thrown at them last second. And we were also now shooting this thing at six in the morning, whereas the scene that we did the first, like the second day, that was um, shot at the end of the day. So they could just they went quickly to a Chinese food place, got that, brought it back. Now they're like, uh, we don't have Chinese food boxes. So I'm giving a little bit of a, a, a fun little Easter egg. But if you look at Point Blank ever uh, in the next year or whatever, you'll notice that. Chinese food boxes turn into circular, uh, like, um, foam boxes or foam. <laughs> but you know what? If, if, the, if the audience is engaged and they are worried about the storyline and the characters, no one gives a shit about no that. Robert, shit. Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez had a very, very, like, important thing that he said in his book, Rebel Without a Crew. And it was very simple. He, just con- he said, continuity, shmontinuity. You know, like, of course, there's always going to be someone who's going to want to pick apart that shit. But you can never let that dictate um, a good performance or a good plot point. And that happens all the time when you're watching a movie and you have an actor who's got his hand up in this shot. And then the other times his hands are folded. You know what? Who gives a fuck if the if the take and the actor is being the most truthful? You don't give a shit about that. You fo- you focus on the Tony Scott first. turned that into an art. Like oh, Tony yeah. Scott, like if you, the, the, again, may he rest in peace, the master of action cinema. I think people call it, he doesn't make action movies, he makes action films. I heard it was one of the great quotes as he yes. passed away. Um, he would, like, there's a disorientating scene in Man on Fire where he, where you're getting into the interiority of, um, of, of uh, Denzel's character and he's lying on a lounge and he's having some drinks and his life is shit. And the, the frenetic cuts, there's no continuity in his body language there, no. but it's all told for like the mania of it 
is it, it actually makes you a bit manic. You're inside his head. You're tortured. You're tormented. He just turned that into a fine art. So I think it's perfect. And also, you get actors like the most amazing bit of movie trivia I ever heard was um, uh, Dave Caruso, who is in CSI Miami. Yeah. Uh, who, who, who intentionally takes glasses. his glasses on and off to make sure that the continuity of the cut that he wants is there because he's such a pain in the ass and so fastidious to do it differently if he different takes that it's really difficult for the people who are assembling his performance to like to to cut around things to go oh no I'm going to take this I, take I've that. heard That's I've, so I've funny. sadly heard that there are some actors who love to use that to their advantage. Yeah. Uh, there was one actress that I that will be named uh, will remain nameless, uh, who if she didn't feel like she liked the cut or uh, didn't like the way that the angle was going, she would flip her hair to the other side so that the continuity would be so messed up that you wouldn't have to be forced for most editors because the, look, editors look for that sort of thing. That's their part of their job, uh, but. It's up to the director to kind of say like yay or nay, and in certain cases, uh, she would deliberately fuck her hair up and flip it to one side so that they wouldn't be able to use it. Yes, it's like sneaky little tricks like that. But in here, um, you know, when when we're in the moment, when we're in the thick of it, and you know, we've just seen Neil deal with you know Bosco's body, like we we mentioned before, it's this one moment where the stakes are raised, and his horrible death mask is what really drives the moment, and there's no sound other than these deafening huge blasts of gunfire, which also very, very uh, good detail to notice is that muzzle flashes are unfortunately going bye-bye in cinema because, or real muzzle flashes, because it's so much easier to create them in post. Yes. You really do appreciate the weaponry and the gunfire that the special effects team brings to this, that where you are going to feel the quote heat of <laughs> the, the gunfire, the blossoming like flowery gunfire that comes out that almost makes it beautiful. The way that man in Dante Spinati, Oh, sorry. got to get up. There. Yeah. Th- that's my normal wake up time. <laughs> oh my God. Let, let it just be said listeners that uh, Blake got up at four 30 in the morning to do this. So that's the level of dedication. That's akin to Michael Mann's level of dedication. That's the discipline. Joe. That's I'm the discipline. Put it out. There. But, um, but seriously, like you watch, Watch modern films and watch how that kind of um, gunfire is now replicated in post and CG, and it just does not have the same impact. And partially due to the fact that when you have a real gun in your hand, and I've done this before too, both you know, like both acting and when I'm shooting something, when you have a real shotgun in your hand and you're dealing with an actual blast, I'll, I'm going to give something away a little bit. So in my new movie, Point Blank, coming out on Netflix next year, uh, we have uh, the lovely and Academy Award winning Marsha Gay Harden in the film. Amazing. And Marsha play, Marsha plays a cop, and she's fucking amazing in it. And uh, and we had to kind of bring her into weapons training to make sure that she looked like she was, you know, she was a badass, like a, a cop badass. Like it wasn't like she just kind of grabbed a gun and just and then she's <laughs> off to the races. Like there is a very particular way that cops handle guns and you know hold guns and execute with you know not execute but you know like shoot with the guns and everything and she had a shotgun and at one point she wasn't feeling comfortable enough to to do it and and this is not slighting her at all but you know you she wanted to bring a level of authenticity to the film that would make the audience feel like they're really watching this not going hey that's an academy award-winning actress holding a shotgun um so she wanted to make sure that she like all the rounds that were going off were real 
or at least real, like you know, with squid, uh, with um, with uh, dummy bullets and the wadding and everything, the blanks. And while we were doing it, I was working with the uh, the stunt one of the stunt coordinators, Buster, who, by the way, was also Batman. He played the Batman stunt double in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. He is he is Batman in all the stunt scenes. What's so, the like, difference between him. you and us? I'm not wearing hockey pads. That's Buster. Buster's not wearing That's fucking Buster. hockey. Buster's Buster not wearing is, fucking hockey if pads. You, <laughs> if you if you were on my Instagram at all while I was making the film was. on the night on the night that we wrapped, uh, we literally wrapped at a karaoke bar where Buster got up and did House of Pain's Jump Around. <laughs> uh, go go back to my Instagram and watch it. That fucking jovial dude is one of the biggest fucking badasses in cinema in the stunt world, and he was showing us how. You know, just tactically how you hold a shotgun, how you discharge a shotgun. And the, the whole point of this is when we were contemplating doing it with um, with digital, we would have instantly lost the kick. We yeah. would have instantly lost everything that a high-powered weapon does to the human body, just down to the ripple. You can't replicate that unless you're using incredibly complex CG that can actually move a body. So every time that someone shoots in heat, you watch very closely how those actors are acting with what's arguably one of the most tempestuous partners in a, in a, or co-stars in a scene. This huge fucking gun that could kill someone, yes. whether it's with real bullets or even if you're near the thing, you can blow someone's fucking ears out or the muzzle flash could catch on like something on fire. There's so many things that can go wrong in those situations, and it's and it, and it can be dangerous. Obviously, Michael Mann works on a level where, he, you know, he's going to make sure that everyone is safe. But that level of authenticity down to the muzzle flash is something that we need to pay respects to because it's something that in the world where technology is just kind of taking out the human factor, these human factors, like just seeing, you know, how these actors can run down the street stop in their place, shoot with the kind of ferocity and also with the realism that you never for once believe that those actors are actors, you know? And like what you said before, like if you watch the special features and see how Bobby De Niro and Val Kilmer, I can call him Bobby. I know I can't, um, <laughs> you know, how, how that, that's a life goal to get to be able to call him Bobby. Oh yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll you know, get Bobby. At some point. Uh, but to have that level of you know experience in a short amount of time and how they can make everybody believe it is amazing. And you know? it's it's the there's also that you're so right about the human element because one part of this scene in the minute that that continues to blow me away is is Dennis Haysbert's scream like Argh! and and it's silent and 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 it's mostly mostly other silence around. But one of the when he screams in the car as they as they. He, as he's trying to maintain control of the car, mm. there's also getting inside the car. It also has a deafening quality with the like with the sound, like gunfire in a car. I can't. You can't imagine how loud it must be. Like especially an assault rifle in that little box that they're in. It well, must have been he, he, deafening. He tackles that a little bit in the uh, in the first heist when you know they they set the off in the um uh well, frames of and then the thing blows up oh sorry you just cut Remember out like, in, like you, in the early joe, sorry, joe i'm so sorry you cut oh, out for like oh. 10 seconds can you just um go back to like uh with the detonator just start at the detonator yeah. again sorry man sorry in 
in the um, uh, what is it? The the bank truck, you know, the one that they uh, that they um, oh the armored they, car they at the beginning over. of the film. Yes, in the armored car that they turned over. Hopefully, copious editing will help that little brain fart out. Oh, uh, but when they when they um, when they do that, and you have that sound bite moment, that sound design moment where everything goes silent and almost muffled for like eight eight frames, it makes you all go like, "Oh shit, this is what it's like to be in a vacuum of." chaos yes. and you're right like it was a very smart and deliberate sound design choice that man made in the moment when um when Haysbrook gets shot because you in in most movies you'd get oh it would be very dramatic and everything and you it happens so quickly i mean it happened he screams at holding was, control of the car but not getting yeah, shot he's he's just kind of like moving very quickly as if he's getting shot yet he's not stopping and no. it's not the thing is, it's anti-dramatic, and that's what makes it dramatic. That's something that, like, his when death... his head rests on the steering wheel, oh. which it happens in this minute, and it's and man doesn't allow us the luxury of even giving Neil the moment because he's under a oh. he's under a hail of bullets. When his head hits that steering wheel, I'm just that's the that's the pure moment of tragedy. It's just other so films. Pure. Other films would have gone back. And even when they're running away, you would have seen like a long lens shot of Neil running, you know, running past frame and revealing Dennis's face like on the on the wheel. Nope, don't have time for it. And because and I think that's partially due to the fact that, you know, man using that slow mo shot has now kind of plugged us into him and his sociopathy that he's going to likely care about his cohorts like Chris when he gets shot. And I think that partially and, you know, he talks about in the commentary how how sociopathic he is that he's going to care about his buddy, but no one else. And he's just going to start laying down fire into a supermarket and shit like that. Going after little old Asian ladies who gives a shit. But I think personally, I think that the only reason why he saves Chris is that if Chris gets nicked or if Chris gets, you know, um, gets arrested, you don't think that after a while he's going to give Neil up. Like, sorry, like Neil, Neil is always going to be out for number one, which is the reason why that Amy Brenneman is still sitting in that fucking Camaro to this day. I believe <laughs> that she's still there. She's still there. <laughs> but it's true. Like that, that's a moment where he cannot look backwards no. and the film can't look backwards. There is there's only one moment where the, in this entire sequence where the film looks back and not forward. It's right mm. after they've just laid a shitload of gunfire down on all the cop cars. You've seen all these cop cars basically in a way as um, kind of like, you know, facsimiles for the human beings and, you know, avatars for humans because you're seeing all these fucking cars just turn to Swiss cheese. It's like oh. if that was people, Jesus Christ, it would be a fucking slaughter. Yes. Thankfully, only a few people got shot and then, you know, they run off and then there's like just a few aftermath shots where you see, even see like there's a low angle shot of one cop that's like laying on the ground and in front of him is this car that's just been reduced and, to fucking and, and the, that like and the dangling destruction and the grated metal and the dangling, you know, bits of plastic and wiring off those yeah. police cars and they're just sort of that 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 burnt that that little bit of that air is sort of burnt mist of like electric electronics in cars just going up in smoke. That little fallout shot is just so like, oh my goodness. Like a and gun actually is dangerous. And and again, because I'm in the edit, like I, I definitely want to like point it out when you guys watch it again. But you know, that that fucking rear view mirror, you know, mm -hmm. in, in any other movie, that would have been 
an issue in the edit. And I'm still like, I wish he would have said something on in post, but I think I know what it is, is that when you're putting these kind of movies together and you can't let a little detail, like I'm sure he didn't expect that mirror to fall down yeah. yet. And, and I don't even know, like, I'm really curious if he had two cameras on it because that sort of thing to have that drop because like, if you look a rear view, a rear view mirror is connected to glass. If there was a device that allowed you to make it like detach itself from the glass, it would have been a big fucking pain in the ass. So I'm guessing that that happened. That was like a quote unquote happy accident, yes. but it happens again in the lower angle. That's kind of, you know, in, um, it's, I'm trying to remember where it was. Oh, it's, it's in Breeden's like lap where yes. it's looking up. And, and if you're watching three, three times continuity shifts, we have the front shot where we see the mirror fall oh. and, and Neil starts taking out the, you know, the, the windshield. Then we have the lower angle where it's clearly just, he's getting more rounds off. There's a good chance that in the edit or actually in the shooting, maybe De Niro got maybe four rounds off. But if you watch it, he's getting more like eight rounds off. So what do you, what do, you do? You just double it up by having camera A show those four shots. And then camera B, you just repeat those four shots. And the only thing that betrays it, if you're looking closely, is that mirror. Is that mirror. And again, man is probably saying, fuck the mirror. If you're looking <laughs> at the mirror, you probably... <laughs> You've lost. Probably, I've lost you. I, 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 in, He's in, lost in, you or you're making a podcast about every minute of heat. <laughs> so at that point, there's nothing he can do. I want to say you. unequivocally in this show that a continuity error as like fleeting and like an eye blink, like an, it's like, it would be like noticing that you have an eyelash on your hand. I'm like, Oh, like it's nothing in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of the artistry and the architecture of this scene, that, that mirror, the, the continuity error isn't, doesn't, doesn't strike me. What strikes me is the fact that, Oh shit. If you fire out of a windscreen, the mirror's gonna fall. Like it's yep. just a piece of shitty like adhesive. And it, that is and it happened at the drive-in too. Yes. That when they're shooting in the fucking drive-in, the yeah. fucking mirror I think I think the mirror goes <laughs> bye bye anyway. You yeah. know, so I think Michael Mann has either a serious fetish or a serious hate for fucking rear view mirrors. <laughs> um I also I wanna I wanna bring up that when the moment um when Breeden dies, I, again remembering when I saw it the first time and even when I saw it at the new Beverly years ago, a couple of years ago, the audible gasp mm. that the audience has in that moment from people that, you know, at the new Beverly who had obviously seen the movie before. But when I was, you know, in that theater the first time, you know, again, no one, I don't think anyone expected that to necessarily happen. No. But then when it does happen, it all clicks into place. I think that's the moment where the audience and like realizes what Michael Mann is trying to make. And that is the, 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 uh, a story that is about cause and effect. Because in most cases, think of it this way, Blake, in most cases, the heist either happens in the beginning of a film and then it's all about like how the, how the you know, characters deal with it or it's at the end of the film and ends up being like the big climax. And then the there's, a, you know, there's some, yeah, then there's some ramifications. There's some, you know, um, consequences that have to be dealt with. But the fact that man puts this thing smack dab in the middle and makes it so that it's all the buildup to this point, And then it's all about the, you know, the shit rolling downhill after and all of the consequences that come from just these eight minutes that unfold in no, you know, like in pretty much real time, other than that one slowdown moment, 
Everything happens in real time, yeah. which I think is a very, very smart and the, device. And the bank heist, just even the heist itself, which is so small, two and a half minutes, Joe. It's like two and a half minutes. It's not even two and a half minutes. And they're out. They've already got guys out the door. Like, oh, the only times that you cut away is to the cops. But even the cops. then. And you and you and that's a and that's a like, and that's a studded flashback. Sorry, just re- re- going to our previous minute. The the reveal of um the re- the the reveal actually happens in a weird sort of flashback moment because the LA mm-hmm. robbery homicide division aren't you know quite close enough to get in the car. They get yeah, the tip off just not before twenty seconds away. They're not twenty from seconds the away when they go like, oh shit, eleven thirty, we gotta go, and then no. the, then they're all so in the, the car and they're fucking starting their no, their, it's, it's, uh, it's their guns. Up. It's a tiny tweak on that, but. But that—that's what's still, you know, from the time that, from the time that they stage themselves in the bank, like it's only about I would say eighty seconds, and Kilmer's already breaking down the first bag. He's already yeah. breaking the first massive brick of money into the bag, and you're like, and 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 I joked in a previous podcast, but I stand to this is like I'm pretty sure that if you don't know what Michael Mann is doing. He's probably taking down a bank right now. Like, I mean, if there's any highline burglaries that have mystified you, he's probably fine. He's 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 taking something down because the efficiency he has these actors take down this bank. He's like he's like he's like Kelso. He's like Tom Noonan. He's just out there figuring out these jobs, getting these guys to do it. It's it's but it's that, unbelievable. That's, that's part of the precision of the filmmaking is that it feels like man is saying, fine, if these guys are so tactical and so precise. To the, to the point where it's militaristic, I my precision and my attention to detail needs to be from a filmic side, from from purely from cinema, that needs to be on point as well. Yes. So that it and and I think that's part of the reason why that scene feels so immersive. You know, there's to to not to jump off on a tangent, but I think just in terms of legacy. You know, um, recently I saw two movies this year alone that many have compared to, uh, to heat. Um, you know, heat is incomparable, but this year that you had, um, what is it? Den of thieves, right. Um, which came out in the beginning for, at least for, for American audiences came out in the beginning of the year, starring everybody's favorite head stabber, Gerard Butler. Um, (laughs) and then, uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, uh, Steve McQueen's, uh, widows just now, I, like many people, completely slept on Widows, I think partially because I was uh, still getting over my uh, point-blank PTSD, so I just didn't go to any movies. But now that I'm getting screeners in and everything, I'm watching Widows like two nights ago, and I'm going, fuck, why did I not see this in theaters? I know. I, like, where, where Den of Thieves got compared to Heat, like, I think very, very fairly, only because, you know, they were touting it as the next Heat. And when you watch it, you go, this guy, these filmmakers watched Heat a lot. I'm not knocking the film. It's perfectly fine. But it felt like someone was trying to deliberately make Heat. Whereas Steve McQueen, and if you know Steve McQueen's work from, you know, not just 12 Years a Slave, but uh, hunger. Shame, Hunger, you know, there here's a guy who as, is as tactically precise maybe just not on the militaristic end but he is as cool and collected and is as confident and exacting as michael mann was in his prime like i to me when i I saw hunger and shame i went here's the new michael mann here's someone who knows how to command a frame and command performances not be wishy-washy to the audience sometimes to the point of making the characters completely unsympathetic but that's part of the and having styles. the balls to just having the balls to let them be unsympathetic. 
literally at points. Yes. Um, but, you know, see, now, when I first heard about Widows, I was like, okay, you know, Steve McQueen doing a heist movie. That's cool. Like, I'm, I'm down. Have you seen the movie yet? I have. I have. Wouldn't you say that Heat, like, is more than just female Heat? I like it. It's, 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 it's one because it got pushed a little bit. I, I wrote, I, I wrote, a, I got to write a review for Dark Horizons, a, a really great Aussie movie news website. Oh, Widows. Garth, big Garth, shout out, Garth, the legendary Garth, and um, I. I, I wrote, like, Michael Mann had a great quote about Heat. He goes, Heat is a human drama, period. Like, when someone was asking him about the action chops in the movie, and he's like, no, Heat is a human drama, period. And I think that ethos is what makes what makes Widows the most comparable movie to Heat that I've ever seen, in that the human, 100%. The human drama and the, the movie's propulsion being all about... Uh, leaning into the depths of the characters and letting them drive the narrative and then letting the, the who these people are dictate the way that the heist goes down is the perfect reflection, even though it's a weird sort of um, bent reflection, is that these guys, their militaristic background, their discipline, you know, Neil's sociopathy, the way that he undertakes this heist is all reflective of his personality. And I think the inexperience and the wonderful, like, desperation um, of, of the, the, the entire women cohort in, in Widows makes their heist more fumbling and bumbling and makes them have mistakes and makes them yep. be nervous. And I just, that, that for me, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's not Lady Heat. The heist was boring. And I'm like, the heist is precisely boring oh, because God. you care. That's the whole e- point. You care exactly about these people and they're not professionals. They're, they are scrounging to do this and to make it up as they go along and to have these antagonistic forces adding and piling on the pressure with Daniel Kaluuya and Brian T. Henry, who oh are God. both Daniel Kaluuya, the Wayne Grove widows. Okay. The fucking dude. A hundred percent. That's what I, I was like, what? seriously thinking the whole time. I'm like, this is fucking Wayne Grove. This is like, this is African-American Wayne Grove, like to a T. And you know, like you bring up a really good point, you know, like in terms of the humanity of it, when I'm watching it, I'm going, this is to oceans 11 and the you know the the uh, oceans 8 spin-off whatever yes. that is yeah what oceans 8 was trying to do widows accomplished by not even realizing that what we've always wanted was an extension of what happened to all the wives and all the women in all the lives of all the guys in heat the yeah. reason why they show that scene in the like right before the heist it's you know, yes, we get a little bit of it. We get to see what happened to Breeden's wife when she's at the bar, and we find out, obviously, you know, like what happens to Ashley Judd and everything. But what really happens to them? What yeah. what's what happens past the credits? And that's why, like, if anyone is really smart, they'll do a double feature of Heat and Widows. Now it would be a very long evening, but I think having to sit through Heat and see how man's theory of cause and effect, both in life and cinema, unfolds, and then. You watch Widows, which technically, start, and I'm not giving anything away, but starts where Heat kind of is <laughs> right now. It's right now. It's right now. Yeah. And what happens to all those people, both men and women, after one bad heist, you know, kind of messes everything up and here are all the consequences that are involved. Yeah, and it's, by it's, having, it's having my, this moment. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's in my top 10. 
It's in my top ten of the year. Oh. I haven't published my top ten yet, but Widows absolutely is in my top ten for for. I know, and for... I did not see it coming. My my producing partner Luke kept saying, "When you're watching Widows, when you're watching Widows," and we're both big <laughs> McQueen fans. And he kept saying, "Like, what the fuck are you? Why are you watching whatever movie I'm I'm posting <laughs> that I'm watching?" He's like, "What the fuck are you doing, man? Watch Widows." I'm like, "I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it." And then when I finally did, I just I, I was just gobsmacked because. It had, especially when we get to, you know, towards the end when shit starts hitting the fan, I started feeling the same thing that I did when, you know, when Breeding gets shot in this minute where, you know, there there's maybe the film doesn't leave you with a, a pensive like, you know, Neil puts his hand on the shoulder of Breeding or closes his open eyes right before he gets out of the, you know, the car that every other fucking movie is likely going to do. Nope. He moves on. But the film the 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 fact that you get to that moment in the bar which is minutes from here and you see the look on his wife's face and that to me is everything that man is trying to do without you even fucking knowing it yep. you know yes he's presenting you with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together again and yes we're making this inner you know like this like downtown LA crime epic and yes we're going to give you a hell of a fucking heist but at the end of the day, it's not the heist that's going to resonate with you. Nah. It's the sense of loss over what is in any other film an inconsequential or peripheral character. Because in 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 all of our lives, we are all peripheral characters to someone else. Yes. And by having that scene in there, it makes you instantly relate to every single person in that movie. Even fucking Jeremy Piven later on. Like I wanted more of him just because man had already set up that – we're gonna ca- we're gonna catch glimpses of my all daughters gave me the shirt. So I don't give a shit. <laughs> my daughters gave me that shirt. I don't give a shit. He's he's very relatable. You're like fuck. I've got to go home and tell my daughters the shirt they gave me for Father's Day is on a crook, is on some crook that he took it off. Oh, oh sweet, I got covered in. You know, I it got dirty. Blood I'm really sorry. It. Yeah, I had to get rid of it. So funny. But yeah, no widows well, is you know that's not a that's not a wrong tangent. I think that. You know, Widows is an extremely, an extremely. But strong if you think movie. about the the legacy of Heat and how, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, thrillers, especially crime crime thrillers and heist thrillers, you know, um, everything from Inside Man to uh, it was a Triple Nine. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been so many heist movies ever since that have, you know, my respects to every filmmaker that has tried it have never come close to the power of what heat was able to do. And then when I saw Den of Thieves, it was like, oh, someone made a, made a heat mixtape because it's pretty much the same thing down to making you feel like Michael Mann even shot it at times. But there's just something that's not, it's, it's like listening to Limp Bizkit uh, play Faith. You know, it's like, it's its own thing. It tries its, it tries its hand at trying to get it as right as possible. But at the end of the day, it's still Fred Durst singing, you know? So (laughs) you can't, you can't quite invest yourself into it. Whereas I think with Widows, he got that the, you know, if you're going to do heat, it's got to be about the people running the stove or under the stove. It's not the fire itself. No, no. And, and, it's almost like Widows is a re- remake of the second half of Heat, if anything. Yeah. Which is the, yep. the, 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 and this is where all the emotional beats hit and all of the, and, and, and all of the, um, 
it's like I think this is what's so great about this scene is like we're literally seeing all the defenses be torn down and then emotionally in the next, you know, the the remaining sort of um, um, 60-odd minutes of the movie, um, the physical defenses and emotional defenses of the individual characters are all coming down because all the, all the toughness and all the facades and all the, uh, all the, all the instincts are all just like being torn down. You know, Vincent's tired. Like, you know, I fucking love when he's just had enough and he goes to that hotel and he's going, I'm going to sleep for a week. Like when he's completely had enough and you just see everyone at the end of their rope, everyone has had enough. And I think that that's where like widows really lines up. But this, you're so right. That, that, that arc um, if you listen to the previous episode, the first in this double, Joe talks about Bob Zemeckis, the great filmmaker, um, having buried guns in his movie. And the phrase means like he, he hides some very important, significant things in plain sight and you sort of play this interconnected, you know, fun little puzzle in your head as you're doing it. And I think that if we were to say there's a buried gun in this movie and like, and it works perfectly, it's the Donald Breeden storyline is the buried gun. It's like he the, is, he's, he's the, the buried gun. character. Buried gun. And I love that. That's that's that to me is a filmmaker that's completely confident and really trusts his audience and and cast someone that, you know, he wasn't the president yet. So, um, you know, you didn't really know him from that. I knew him from as Joe Boo from Major League. So I was just like, (laughs) hey, I love that guy. You know, like and then Pedro Serrano. (laughs) But it's really smart that he also invested the time in showing that because you could have just been maybe one scene like just yeah. to set him up maybe minutes before you know um uh the de niro and gang go into bud court's unfortunate diner um but by having him and showing him at his wits end that he's he's got no other choice yes. and that i think that's where it works is that like you don't go you dumbass you go fuck man he was put in a really bad position like if anything Wow, I never thought about this until now. But what Macaulay does to um, to Breeden in that uh, diner is he turns the heat up on yeah. Breeden there and says the heat. Some ten seconds to decide right now. Like he gives him that moment, and you know, even the way that man shoots it, where it's like there's one that one shot where it's like you know you're going back and forth and back and forth, and there's that one shot that's almost like it's almost a jump cut that's outside, like not outside, but like. Uh, kind of like on the opposite end of the of uh, the kitchen, and you just look at them staring at each other in that one moment. That's pretty much the same. It has the same kind of both narrative, character, and visual impact that the moment where Val Kilmer sees the cops across the street. That's the same moment that De Niro sees. Holy shit, my life! Like. Oh, what's happening? Like someone's given the choice. Danny's. Yeah, exactly. Wait, are we still on? Uh, I got up to De Niro. You froze on that moment for De Niro, but and it, then you froze. Oh. Okay, so you know that that moment for De Niro where he's seeing the heat around the corner, you know, and every if you think about it, now I want to go back and watch it for the millionth time because <laughs> I want to see where everyone is given that choice yes because that's what that that's what man is laying out for us is that we're all given a choice we're all given a choice to either do the right thing do the wrong thing and hear the consequences to it and they are they are very plainly presented sizemore treo they're presented with hey, it val's presented hey, with van it zandt the- has the best one when exactly when, when hugh benny says you want to deal with these guys it's like <laughs> over an hour ago in the movie you want to deal with these guys and and he does it 
flippantly. He didn't even, wouldn't even make eye contact with Henry because Rollins. Because he just, yeah, he just thinks that, you know, I'm, I'm rich enough where this will all pan out. But everyone is given this, given a decision for the most part. And it's now about how do you deal with that like position? And I would say that that is presented in the cafe scene as well. Yeah. You know, like they're both presenting each other with a choice, you know, like whether it's as passive and non-threatening as possible, but it's still there where they're saying, look, when the heat's around the corner, it's your choice. Whether you come at me or get the fuck out of the way, I'm going to get out of the situation. So this moment here in this minute, we're seeing what happens when those people make those choices and the un, sometimes unfortunate consequences that that lie therein after those choices are made. And the way out, as we close on this minute, the way out is through. And as, as this minute ends, the way out for some of these characters, it's either death or it's or it's the, the high potential of death. Because as this minute is closing and where we were so devastated that it closed is Val Kilmer popping out of this car, taking tactical oh, cover dude. against a car door and just starting to lay waste to the police blockade that is in front of them. And he gets out of that car and it's like, we have a tactical advantage. We know we've got threats behind us. And he's like, lay some fire back um, like in a brief second. And then it's just powering this unload of a rifle forward. And you're just like, you're like this, this moment, you know, some, some Breeden, Breeden's choice manifested in that outcome where he's now dead. And these other guys like, what's so great is the stakes are still so goddamn high as we close oh, yeah. this minute. And he's just like, and, the way out is they, through. Yeah. He, he's an afterthought. They have to move forward, forward at any cost. And one thing to, uh, to notice when we're like literally pausing this one shot, there is this tracking shot that, that man has and Dante Spinati has on Val where this is where everything widens out. Mm. This is where we start to really see the lay of the land and the see scope. His whole physique. Of, you see his whole beautiful well, like that, pose. Everything in the foreground and see how exactly how like perfectly poised he is. It's like he is a he is literally a Tasmanian devil of bullets. And you <laughs> want to get the fuck out of the way. But look very closely and in the previous minute I was talking about um, Squibs and Bondo and how it's very difficult to choreograph and orchestrate um, gunfight like this because, you know, you have all these things happening in the frame and you're trying to create chaos and mayhem pun. Uh, like <laughs> you're trying to get it all together so that it feels like it's as like crazy as it would be in real life. And watch very closely when Val is running. Look at the I think it's uh, either a cop car or um, I think it's like a truck, like a black truck. You start to see in the foreground all the gun, all the shrapnel, and all the bullets hitting that that truck in the foreground, right? And without hitting our actor, man is filling the frame with with bullet chaos, so that you're feeling like, holy shit, it's all closing in around him. But I never, I, I don't remember noticing this until this time. But watch very closely. But you'll see Neil McCauley run in the foreground, and within frames of him running past. Bullets hit right at that truck right behind him. How fucking close <laughs> the actor or the stunt person was from getting hit like that. Like, I don't know why I never noticed that before, but I just went like, oh, my butthole puckered. I'm just like, God damn it. Yeah, you know, like, I, I, know, I, know, I know that scene and I've watched it a few times and I have picked it up before, but I, I, it still strikes me. It's like 
boom, boom, boom. Like just the the perfect like movement of a body and where you were is where they are now shooting. <laughs> and it's like yeah. it's it's like it's that it's that unconscious you guys need to be moving or you're dead or you're just cheddar like that you're just you shred even how like they are moving the way that they are and then man talks about it how militaristic they are but how and we've seen enough movies where it's like cover me go and everyone's kind of going from spot to spot to spot to spot but these guys barely even do that they are so fucking pro that they're just using their body language and how they're like where they're facing their guns for the other person, one of their partners, to be able to move from yes. there. There's not a lot of like, all right, you go here, or a lot of that stu- stupid like two fingers this way and one <laughs> finger that way and everything. You know, they don't need any of that shit. And again, man doesn't give us a big wide shot. And right. and like again, one, when you start making movies and you start realizing like the language of cinema and what are things that are needed for whether it's scope or geography, you know, uh, for especially for an action scene, so you know where everybody is and where the stakes are. They never do that. They are always ground floor and either far away looking close in a long lens or they're right over the shoulder of everybody, cops and robbers included. You never get that Die Hard with a Vengeance shot where you're looking (laughs) down at the building and you see people eating popcorn or whatever. You don't see like kind of a bird's eye view of how close or far away everyone is. You know it. You know where everybody is purely because – of the human, like the actors that are involved and how they're placing themselves and also sly little tricks like having, you know, a Neil McCauley or a stunt person running past frame and the next thing you know, you see De Niro, you know, plant himself and start hitting cover fire. It's all so precise and that's part of the reason why people feel like they're in the hands of a master whenever they watch Heat. Well... I have been in the hands of a co-hosting master of this show. Ah, fuck off. <laughs> oh, fuck off. Uh, l- ladies and gents, I mean, what, what can I say? It's the 109th minute of my favorite and, and, and my co-host's favorite movie of all time, one of the greatest pieces of human drama, period, and we are in one of the greatest pieces of action cinema we've ever seen. Such frenetic pacing, such pure moments of emotion, and uh, it's been an absolute blast, Mr. Joe Lynch, having well, you on thank to talk you. about and this. Now, now I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it down. Now you have to have me on one more time. One more time. Yes, just you know, and if even if it's during the credits, I'll talk about the credits. That's totally fine. Well, you're, you're, you're definitely coming back. You can. Uh, you've got a mortgage on one of those credit moments. But I'm just gonna throw it out there in the universe because some things happen when you just throw them out in the universe, right? You just throw them out in the universe and they're there for the hundred and sixty. Fifth and sixty-sixth minutes of the movie, the final minutes. There's just one name that is over those two slots, much like your name was over the hundred and eighth and hundred and ninth minute of heat. That name is Michael Mann. So what I what I'm throwing out into the universe um, for anyone who's listening is that we would love to sh- close the show with Neil's hand in, in 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 Vincent's hand, looking up to the sky as Moby's God is moving over the face of waters. That is exactly the moment that Michael Mann will be on the show. I'm going to throw it out there. I'm going to say Michael Mann will be on the show and he'll be there in those minutes. That's the universe. You're really, I've got to say, Blake, you're really slick. You're really <laughs> sick. What you're really saying is Lynch, get on it. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it to you. Lynch, Lynch has already, what I, what I can reveal, I won't reveal exactly how, but Lynch has been on it, folks. Lynch has been on it for me um, uh, since episode let me 30. Say, but what I'm, what I'm, what I will say this also. Hold on. I'm saying this right now. Michael Mann's office is a block away. So 
I'm going to leave now and I'm going to just stand in front of his office for the next uh, six months and hopefully I will have the chance to be like, dude, finish point blank. Please finish point blank first. I'll finish finish point blank first. Finish that first, release your movie. What's funny is that I've I've seen Michael now three times at these DGA dinners and I think the last time I got caught up, you know, here's me na- drop, naming, uh, dropping names, but uh, I got caught up in a conversation between <laughs> McGee and Betty Thomas. And Betty Thomas, if you don't know, is like one of the greatest comedy directors. She did uh, the Brady Bunch movie, Private Parts. Oh, God. Uh, Private Parts shit. is my favorite Obviously, of hers. I, I love, love that movie. I, so when you're in the middle of a conversation between Betty Thomas and McGee and you see my man walk by, it's hard to be like, excuse me, and then just run over and be like, please be on this podcast. Because uh, I've talked to him before and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's Michael Mann, you know, so I'm probably just looking like a big fanboy. But uh, I will be part of this quest to, uh, to basically steal Michael Mann. And, and, and you know what? We should make it like a heist. We should be as precise as possible. He's going to, Joe, if there's anyone that's going to spot the heat coming around the corner, it's Michael Mann. He's going to just, yeah, he's going he's, to, he's, he's going he's gonna to see that something is wrong. He's going to see you haul and he's going to, he's not going to hesitate. He's just going to, everything's going to slow down in a post <laughs> production slow mo shot. And the next thing you know, there's going to be rear view mirrors falling from the oh, sky God. three different times. Uh, but I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a spinoff show right now. We're going to call it uh, Man Heat. No, Man Heater. Instead man- of Manhunter, we're going to call it Man, man Heater. <laughs> it's going to be our quest to get Michael Mann in this film, and then it's going to end with us having Michael Mann tied up like swimming with sharks, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll force him to watch God, the final swim- minute of Heat. Great, great. I'm-, I'm on it. Oh, look. See, this... <laughs> That's why I love Joe Lynch so much, apart from everything else, apart from everything else. Um, so generous. Guys, thank you so much uh, for listening along. I hope you've had as much fun as I have and as Joe has. Um, at the Joe Lynch, am I right with that? Yes. Yeah, at the yep. Joe Lynch on Twitter. Follow Joe there for everything. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the Movie Crypt, do it. Um, it is, at, you know, a podcast of the highest of the of the highest quality for movie geeks and some amazing 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 guests um uh, yeah, we have some really good guests coming up so if you're a fan of uh of, of the genre i think you'll uh you'll be thrilled of who stops by you'll be thrilled and 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 i want to thank joe for his invite to bring my young son along to the 48 hour podcast this year um in la and i couldn't make it there but look there's always next year you never know i would have finished the uh, i would have finished one heat minute by then and I was talking to my wife, Joe, and uh, I said, oh, you know, we finished the podcast in July. And she goes, you'll have another show in August. I'm <laughs> and sure. Like, and she's like, you'll have another show in August. So I'm like, I, I, like, how could I ever, how could I find another thing that's this, this, but oh, we'll see. I will say this. Um, if you are in LA, you are going to be a guest on our show. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Done. Well, that, if yeah. that's, a prom- that's a promise. That's a promise. That's a promise. I've got to, to, to make my way to LA to, to make it happen. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. Um, it, is, is, it is the funnest thing that I do. Joe, thank you so much again. You're amazing. This has been great, and it has been worth getting up early for you. Thank you for taking time out of Point Blank. I can't freaking wait to see Point Blank. I have heard that we're pretty much completely in the can there, so that's amazing. Um, um, Congratulations on the... 48-hour pod, $35,000 this year. That's another like $11,000 on from last year. $36,000, about $12,000 from last year's total. So congrats. Guys, thank you for listening to One Heat Minute. OneHeatMinute.com is there. We are 109 minutes. 109 
minutes into this thing of a 170 minute project. I never thought it would go this far, but we are ramping up. We'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And remember, do not hide behind a tiny U-Haul.